0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing our journey in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're actually going to start Matthew chapter 4 this morning. So go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 4. And as as you're turning there, just uh, out of curiosity, has anybody set any New Year's resolutions this year? Can I just show a hand? Okay, I see one or two out there. All right, New Year's resolutions. Has anybody set any um, dietary resolutions? or exercise resolutions? Anybody? Okay, I see, I see a few hands out there. Okay, those are generally the kind that you see on New Year's. And I was telling Rosemary about this the other day. I, I feel like January may be the hardest time to set a dietary restriction upon yourself because you're just coming off of Thanksgiving and Christmas where there was zero restrictions, right? You're, you're going to people's houses, they serve you tons of food, and it would just be a little rude to, to say no, right? We're like, oh no. You know, I can't can't eat that. But so I mean, it's kind of no rules in in November and December, right? It's when all the restrictions go out, and then you try to pull back. And in January, what happens? you You try to pull back January one goes by January two your body starts to kind of react in a negative way to these new dietary restrictions right you're like, oh the sugar uh, you know the sugar becomes a little more a little more tempting right We experience temptation, and so when we experience temptation, it's hard to pull back and Become resolute, right? Resolute to those resolutions. It's hard to do. So I, I um, respect you all who have made those, those resolutions. It's very, very di- difficult. And so temptation, uh, it, it's, it's a part of life. We're always going to experience it. It's always going to be a part of life, this side of eternity. In heaven, we will no longer experience temptation, but temptation on this side of eternity will happen. Whether it's uh, temptation to eat something that we decided not to eat, or whether it's just like we talked about in the kids' devotion, where it's something that we're being tempted to do something that's outside of God's will for us, outside of his will, as we read in the Bible, a temptation to sin, which is essentially a a temptation to to be destroyed, right? Because temptation comes from the devil. We're going to talk about that. Uh, It's just something that we're going to face in life. Now, something I want to ask you, what does it look like, For God to be tempted. What does it look like for God to be tempted? We know what it looks like for us to be tempted, right? Sometimes we're able to resist, other times, not so much, and we fall into temptation. But what does it look like for God, God made in the flesh? What if God dwelt among us, lived among us, and faced temptation just like we do today? Just like you will face later on today you will face some form of temptation later on today. What does it look like for Jesus to face temptation? How would he handle that? How would he react to temptation? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today in Matthew chapter 4. And if you remember, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, Pastor Jared has done a great job of just kind of uh, given us a great outline of the birth of Jesus, his arrival on the scene, and we celebrated that as, at Christmas where he was born in a, in a manger and in a stable. And we've noticed something about Jesus's life up to this point, and it's going to, Matthew's going to continue to bring out some points about Jesus where Jesus has a lot in common with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, and so just think about Jesus's birth and his arrival in Bethlehem and how that compares to the birth of Israel as a nation. So in Matthew chapter 2 verse 16, we read that Herod killed babies in Bethlehem, right? Do you remember when Israel was just a young nation, they were living in captivity in slavery in Egypt, that Pharaoh actually slaughtered Hebrew babies, Remember that? Because they were becoming overpopulated, and they didn't want uh, the, the Israelites as a nation to overcome and overpower the Egyptians. They wanted to keep them in control. And so Pharaoh was slaughtering baby boys in Egypt, and when Jesus was born, baby boys were being slaughtered by King Herod. In Matthew, also in chapter 2, we read that to avoid being killed, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus took baby Jesus, the young boy, and they went to Egypt, right? And eventually, Jesus would come back out of Egypt and return to Israel, much like God led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so there's some parallels here to the life of Jesus to the life of Israel as a people group. Before they came out of Egypt the Israelites went through the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea and they experienced a miracle where God showed his power over the Egyptians and the Egyptians were killed in the Red Sea. And we, we heard last week, Pastor Jared, uh, the baptism of Jesus. This is very similar to the Israelites going through the Red Sea where Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And this would be the beginning of his ministry, just like the Israelites, when they passed through the Red Sea, that would begin their ministry as God's people. So, after these two major events, the Israelites going through the Red Sea and Jesus being baptized in Matthew chapter 3, something similar happens. Israel goes into the wilderness to go to the promised land, and we're going to see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus is also going to be sent into the wilderness. But when we read the Old Testament, We see what happens to the nation of Israel when they're in the wilderness. Do you remember what happens? They rebel against God. So God has claimed the Israelites as his people. The Israelites were going to represent God to all of the nations surrounding them. If people wanted to know what God was like... They would just have to look at the Israelites to see this, this is God's people. This is how God's people are supposed to be. This is how they're supposed to act. But when God's people had an opportunity to obey God, to step out in faith and trust God to be their father, because in the Old Testament, Israel is, is seen as... As God's son. We see that in in scripture everywhere in the Old Testament. Israel is God's son. And so God has this son, Israel. It's a people group. It's a nation. But when they had the opportunity to glorify God, they slipped up and they turned against God. And there's several instances in Exodus where... The Israelites turn against God. They worship a golden calf. They complain and grumble against Moses about not having enough food. When they get food direct from God, they complain that it's not meat like they used to eat in Egypt, and they're constantly grumbling, constantly complaining, like, why can't we go back to Egypt and live as we were there? And so now Jesus, who is God's son in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, is about to go into the wilderness. He's been baptized. He's gone through his Red Sea moment, and now God is going to send him for a period of time into the wilderness. The Israelites were there for 40 years. Jesus is going for 40 days. Once again, there's parallels there. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus going to repeat the same mistakes that the nation of Israel committed in the wilderness, in their wanderings? Will he choose to rebel against God? Will he fall into temptation to serve other gods, to grumble against him, to rebel, and to go against God's will? The Israelites sinned so much against God that a whole generation had to die off before they could actually enter the promised land. Would Jesus fall into the same trap? Let's find out together, shall we? If you have your Bibles and if you're able, I ask that if you would stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 1 and we're going to go through verse 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, we we thank you Uh, for the reading of your word, Lord. We thank you that we have your word, Lord, in its completed form, God, and that your word never returns void, Father. And where we are gathered as saints, Lord, as believers. Holy Spirit, you are here among us. And so I ask, Father, that you would do your work among us this morning, that as we read your word, God, that you would convict hearts, engage minds so much show that it affects our hands as we leave this place later today. Father, this is your time. God, use me as your instrument, as your tool to preach your word, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts this morning so that we may see you in the glorious light that you truly are. God, may we see a glimpse of your glory this morning. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we see... This is an interesting passage, is it not? Matthew has set us up right here, like we were just talking about, to see what's going to happen to Jesus when he enters the wilderness. We already know what happened to Israel. We have all that in the Old Testament. They messed up in a big way, which is why Jesus is here in the first place. But he's going to have to face the same temptations that the nation of Israel faced when they went into the wilderness. And so we're going to see how how God handles this. How does Jesus handle these temptations that are going to be thrown at? Him. Now, before we get into the verses here, uh, we have some preliminary concerns that I want to address because this is a really interesting passage, and there's a lot of questions that kind of arise from a passage like this where the devil is having a conversation with Jesus, right? Um, so, the first question that we have to ask is What is the level of influence of demons and the devil in the life of a believer or in this world? Well, we see in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have that, right? That there are uh, satanic activities going on around us, that there is satanic activity that is out there seeking to influence believers to not live in the fullness of the grace of God and to be tempted and to fall into sin. In fact, John tells us that the, uh, the devil is out there and he's seeking to destroy, right? To kill and to destroy. And that is his, that's his job, right? That's, that's his goal. Um, However, there is a a quote that I want to share with you. It's by C.S. Lewis. And I think he gives us a really good perspective on how we should think as far as it comes to demonic activity and temptation. But he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, talking about humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Okay? So one, we can just just forget about it. They don't exist. We don't have to worry about it. That's, that's one option, right? We've already learned that that's not an option. It's in Scripture. We're being told that these things do exist. So we don't want to fall into that trap. The other option is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We don't want to fall into that trap either. There's one thing to believe that they exist, which we must, right? Because it's in God's word. God's word is telling us that these things do exist and they hold some level of power here on earth. However, we don't want to be so concerned about them, so interested in them that all we think about is them and we're forgetting all about Jesus. Okay? So we need to meet somewhere in the middle. We need to believe that they exist, that they're set out there to destroy us, and we look to Jesus to give us the answer and how we should handle these things. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to clear that out uh, before we get further into the text. The other question you may be asking yourself, and this is a good one, and I'm going to briefly touch on it because we could talk about this for a long time. But the question is, can Jesus, being the Son of God— can he really be tempted in the first place? Can Jesus really be tempted? He's the son of God. He's 100% God and God cannot sin. So can Jesus even be tempted to sin? Well, the answer is no, but also yes. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a little bit of both, okay? So Jesus can be tempted, okay? We're, we're gonna read that in scripture this morning. Jesus being fully man, he was tempted like we are. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted. He has a fleshly side. It's, it's a mystery that God lived among us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, that he was fully God and yet also was fully man. Jesus had to eat. He had to drink water to survive. He was subject to getting hurt. He probably stubbed his toe on things just like you and I did. He probably got a common cold when he was living. He had to suffer through all these things through humanity and he also faced temptation. And you might be asking yourself, well, how can Jesus be tempted to do anything? He's holy, he's righteous, and he's good. Well, we're going to talk about that this morning in today's passage. We're going to see what would tempt Jesus. What would be a temptation that he might fall into? And so, but one more thing before we get into our text this morning, we talked about this a little bit with the the kids this morning. But we we asked, what is temptation? What does it mean to be tempted? What what does it mean? What is a good definition of temptation? I think Ezra gave a great definition of temptation. Uh, but there's one from Bob Utley that I want to share with you this morning, and it says, temptation is the enticement of a God-given desire beyond God-given bounds. The enticement of a God-given desire beyond a God-given bounds. You see, we all have desires that are given to us by God. Okay? They're holy and they're good as long as we keep them within the bounds of God-given boundaries. Right? And so a temptation is basically taking something that is good and taking it beyond what God would allow us. And that's why it's a temptation, right? It's confusing because we know these things are good, but if we take these things and, and extend them beyond the will of God for what he would have us to take them, then it's sin. And so this is what Jesus is going to experience in these passages. So as you, as you read the text this morning, think about the Messiah, what his role is, and what the devil is tempting him to do in the role of the Messiah, Today's main idea, as we deal with temptation, is that living in the will of God is worth the temporary suffering because God is trustworthy. And we're going to see Jesus live this out. Living in the will of God is worth the temporary suffering because God is trustworthy. So let's go to verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. First thing that sticks out to me in this is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This wasn't really his choice to go into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit of God rested upon him after his baptism and he drove him into the wilderness. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, why does God do this? This doesn't seem something that is very nice to do to Jesus. Well, just like the nation of Israel, God drives them into the wilderness and he presents a series of tests to them. Now, there's a difference between temptation and tests. God will use tests in our lives to strengthen our faith in him. God will use circumstances in our lives to strengthen our faith in him. We experience that every single day. These are not temptations. These are opportunities to step out in faith, right? Because faith is the backbone of our salvation. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we're not living in faith, then we are not living a life that is pleasing to God. And so God, in his grace and his love towards us, he gives us plenty of opportunities to step out in faith right? Anybody experienced that in their life where God is giving us plenty of opportunities to step out in faith? Jesus is not immune to this. He, uh, God led the Israelites into the wilderness. He's going to lead Jesus into the wilderness to test Jesus's faith. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. This is good. The problem is, and what happens in uh, verse three, well, before we get there, Jesus is, uh, verse two, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, so Jesus is going without food. So this is part of his test, okay? Moses fasted for 40 days. Jesus is going to follow the pattern of the Old Testament, and he's going to fast as well because Jesus is preparing for his ministry. And God is going to use this opportunity in the wilderness to test him, to prepare him for a very difficult ministry as the suffering Messiah. And so Jesus knows that it's God's will for him to have his faith tested and strengthened during this time, he knows that he's going to be in the wilderness, an austere environment, it's going to be difficult, and he's going to be without food for a certain period of time. This is God's will for him right now, to test his faith, and Jesus is going forward with this. So he was very susceptible to temptation at this time, all right? He's tired, He's in an austere environment, very difficult, probably hot out in the Middle East, Uh, doesn't have a lot of water. I imagine he drank some water, but he's 100% without food for 40 days. So he's very tired. And so verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's the first temptation. Jesus, verse 2, is very hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's only had water. He's tired. He's out in the wilderness. He's going through this difficult time of testing. And the devil uses it as an opportunity to throw down a temptation. Okay, and temptation, again, is different than a test. God is testing Jesus, and yet the devil is going to tempt, which is to destroy, right? A lot of times in our lives, God will take us through a path of testing. And the devil is going to use that as an opportunity to tempt us and to test or to tempt us to break our faith and allegiance with God. So the first temptation that Jesus faces here is the temptation to eat, okay? It's God's will right now that Jesus would not be eating anything. And so the temptation here that the devil draws out to Jesus, and we don't know if this is uh, something that Jesus is face to face with the devil right now. He met him out there. We don't know, okay? We, we, that's not offered to us in this passage. We don't know if this is just an internal struggle that Jesus is facing and the devil's tempting him just like we're tempted on, you know, inside of our hearts and our soul. Uh, but whatever is happening, he's being tempt- tempted to eat food when he's not supposed to be eating food right now, okay? And so the devil is basically like, if you are the son of God, which he is, right? He's the son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So why is this tempting to Jesus? Number one, He's hungry. He hasn't eaten in quite a long time. If you and I, anybody ever fasted for 40 days? No, me neither. Fasted for a number of days, not 40. 40 is a long time. I don't know if I'd make it. But Jesus is doing this, and he's really hungry, and he is the son of God. And so what what the devil is trying to do, and I submit to you this morning, this is what the devil tries to do in each and every single temptation that we face. All right, there's a pattern. It's all exactly the same. As I was reading this and, and studying this passage, David Platt in his commentary says, there are no new temptations. There aren't any. They all just look a little bit different, but it's the same pattern every single time. And so I wanna share this pattern with you. The pattern of temptation is this. Number one is doubt. The first thing that happens when we face temptation is doubt, Okay, think about it. Think what happened to Eve in the, in the garden of Eden and to Adam. What did the devil say? What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say that you shall not eat of this tree? And so the first step is doubt. And once the tempter, once the serpent got Eve to doubt, what did she do next? She went to the next step of t- falling into temptation is unbelief. It goes from doubt, then you go to unbelief. Well, did God really say that? I'm doubting. Now, all of a sudden, I actually don't believe what God said is true. And that's when we start falling into sin. I talked to Pastor Jared about this the other day, and he was asking me, in the pattern of temptation, when does a believer actually fall into sin? And we we kind of decided that it's actually step two. It's unbelief. Even before the actual act of rebellion is committed, when we step into unbelief and we start believing that what God says isn't true in in our minds and in our hearts, that's when we start stepping into sin, and that's when the sinful act is actually committed. So even before the sin is committed, we make a sin in the mind and in the heart that we don't believe God and we're no longer living in faith. That's when we actually step into sin. And so the devil is using the same pattern on Jesus. He wants him to doubt. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, right, why would the son of God need to be hungry? Does God not care about his son? Why is he putting you through this? What a mean God to have you wander in the wilderness for 40 days without food. You're the son of God. You don't deserve this. That's the temptation that's happening. It's doubt, and he wants Jesus to step into unbelief. But let's see what Jesus does. Jesus responds in verse 3. He says, or in verse 4, excuse me, he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what what is Jesus saying here? He's actually quoting scripture, and it's important to know where in the Bible Jesus is coming from. He's actually quoting a scripture found in Deuteronomy in verses two through three, okay? And it's pretty significant why Jesus is bringing this out. So Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two through three says this. It says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. "'Testing you to know what was in your heart, "'whether you would keep his commandments or not. "'And he humbled you and let you hunger "'and fed you with manna, which you did not know, "'nor did your fathers, that he might make you know,' "'what? "'That man does not live by bread alone, "'but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth.' Of the Lord. So Jesus quotes this end passage. Why? Because this is the lesson that Israel was supposed to learn the first time. When Israel went into the wilderness, this is the lesson that God wanted them to learn because God sent Israel into the wilderness to be tested, to strengthen their faith and tr- trust in God, and yet they grumbled and complained. What is the devil wanting Jesus to do? He's wanting him to grumble and complain against God, just like the Israelites did. But Jesus says, No, I'm going to intercept this because I know exactly what you're doing, tempter. You're trying to pull the same trick that you pulled on the nation of Israel. And Jesus, in essence, is bringing up this exact story and he's saying, I'm not going to fall for it. This is what you did to Israel. No, thank you. I'm trusting in God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was the lesson that Israel was supposed to learn the first time. They didn't. Jesus, being the perfect son of God, learns this lesson through testing, and he lives in obedience. He doesn't fall into unbelief. He's tempted to doubt. He doesn't take the bait, and he moves forward. Verse 5 says the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this is the second temptation. The first temptation was to, a temptation to eat. It was essentially a temptation to gratify self. And this is what we face as well. We will be tempted to gratify the selfish desires. If you and I were out in the wilderness and we were hungry and we didn't have any food, we would likely eat and turn into, or turn stone into bread if we could, right? And we would eat because we were hungry. It's a temptation to satisfy the desires of self. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to repeat that because Jesus understood that living in the will of God is worth the temporary suffering because God is trustworthy. The second temptation is for Jesus to uh, showcase his power as the Messiah, but to do so in a way that would basically exalt himself and to show his power in a way that would be inappropriate for the Messiah, outside of God-given bounds. So the devil, again, being sneaky, he's going to try to use scripture, So, the devil says, well, the first temptation didn't work. Jesus used scripture on me. Now, I'm going to use scripture on him. And actually, this is important to notice as well, because Satan actually quotes Psalm 91. Okay, it's Psalm 91, verses 10 through 11, where it says in Psalm 91, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan actually quotes it pretty word for word here. The problem comes where he is not using this scripture in its proper application. Okay, Satan is taking scripture and he's twisting it to use it for nefarious purposes. And just a quick aside from that, this tells me that we can have scripture memorized And we can have it in our hearts and in our minds. So if we don't know how to apply it and furthermore obey it, it's not gonna be super helpful to us because even the devil knows the Bible, okay? But he's trying to misuse it. He's gonna use it to twist. He's gonna use it to uh, hurt our, our testimony, to hurt the character of God. He's gonna seek to use it to destroy. And so I wanna take this opportunity that when you read your Bible and you memorize scripture and you hide them in your heart, also be sure to know how to apply it Also be sure you know how to obey it. Understand how to read your Bible. Understand what the Old Testament means, what the New Testament means, what these everything comes together and points to Jesus. Understand that, and that takes time. It also takes time spent in Christian community where we talk about the Bible together. There's a reason why we meet once a week before the worship service, and we sit around and we just talk about the Bible. It's called a Bible study group. Uh, Every single Sunday morning at 9.15 where we gather, we have two ladies' classes, we have one men's class, and we even have kids' classes where we talk about the Bible. We talk about what did God say, what does it mean, and how can we obey this and apply it to our lives. Okay, because we need to know those things or else we're just going to have scripture memorized and we don't know what to do with it. Okay, and we need to recognize when we are in temptation and we hear the word of God twisted or preached in a way that's misapplied, we need to understand that and be able to combat against that. All right, so that was free. Now we're back to our passage. So Satan takes Psalm 91. He's going to try to use scripture against Jesus. Jesus has used scripture against him. The devil says, All right, I see that. I'm going to try that against you. And so he says, Take yourself up to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem throw yourself down, and then stand up because you're the son of God. Wouldn't that be a scene? Let me tell you that the temple in Jerusalem was probably the busiest place in Israel. There was lots of people at the temple. If Jesus stood up at the pinnacle of the temple, a lot of people would have seen that. A lot of people would have seen him throw himself down and just kind of land, stand there and say, behold, the Messiah is here. And people would have worshiped him because they would have recognized that this would have been the Messiah. He's there at the temple. This is where he should be. And yet Jesus knows this is not the end goal for the Messiah. This is not God's will for my life right now. You're taking this scripture devil and you're taking it out of context and you're trying to misapply it to the son of God. And so Jesus responds in verse seven. He says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus, again, takes a passage from the Old Testament. This one is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where it says, you shall not put the Lord God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Jesus doesn't include that last part but he includes the first part. Now, we need to ask ourselves, well, what happened at Massa? Massa was a place that actually means to test or uh, to rebel. And so uh, Moses ended up calling this place Massa. It means to test. And this is where the people of Israel actually tested God. And so they're wandering around in the wilderness. They find themselves in this place and they, they don't have any water. And so the Israelites cry out to Moses, and they complain against him again and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to bring us to this place where we're going to die? And they said, God, if you're really God, provide us water right now. God, being gracious and loving and merciful, grants them their wish, and yet the people sinned against God because they grumbled against him. They didn't step out in faith, trusting that God would take care of their needs, trusting that God, being loving, would give them water to drink, and so he has Moses put water out of a rock. And yet, what happens here is that the people of Israel test God. So Jesus, once again, is saying to the devil, you did this once, to Israel, in the wilderness, and they tested God. I'm not going to fall into the same trap. He's the Messiah. I don't need to prove myself as the Messiah by going to the temple and throwing myself down and standing up in front of everybody. I'm going to prove myself to be the Messiah by obeying the will of God. Because Jesus understood that living in the will of God is worth the temporary suffering because God is trustworthy. Jesus wasn't concerned about exalting himself at this time. He was concerned about obeying the will of God for him, embracing his role as the suffering Messiah to fulfill the mission that God had for right in front of him at this particular time. And right now, he's there to strengthen his faith. He's there to fast. He's there to draw close to the Lord during this time. And so Jesus, once again, tells the devil that he will not make the same mistakes as the Israelites made in the wilderness. Verse eight says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The final temptation right here is for Jesus to fall down and worship the devil. Now, I'm going to argue with you this morning that this is the most difficult temptation that Jesus faces. And I'm saying that because of this. The devil, of course, Jesus has authority over the world. He was present in creation. Um, He is the son of God. He already has that authority. And yet the final authority for the Messiah had not yet been granted to Jesus, right? Because his mission is just starting. And what is Jesus's mission on earth? His mission was to be the Messiah, to suffer, to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin, and then he would resurrect and defeat death and sin forever. This is the mission of the Messiah. What the devil essentially is doing in this temptation, he's saying, whatever authority that God has given me, and we know that the devil has some kind of authority here on earth, whatever authority I have, Jesus, I will give it to you right now if you bow down and worship me. Now, what that means for Jesus is that Jesus can claim a certain amount of authority without having to go to the cross. This is what the devil's offering to Jesus. I'm offering to give you kingship and authority without the suffering of the cross. That would be pretty tempting, I think, to avoid the cross altogether and to still come out and say, I have a certain amount of authority. Because the devil knows. He knows what Jesus' mission is was. And he understands that when Jesus goes to the cross, that Jesus would die as the sinless blood, or sinless lamb, spotless lamb, just like he, the, the uh, Israelites experienced in the Passover, right? That the, the lamb was sacrificed. We talk about that, that with the kids this morning. And that Jesus will provide a way for everybody to experience salvation. If Satan can thwart Jesus from this mission, he's succeeded. And the temptation for Jesus then is to experience the the, the, um, the, um, the, the, <laughs> the uh, experience of having authority without the suffering. And so this was the temptation that Jesus would experience in this particular passage. He says, all these I will give you, the tempter says this, if you fall down and worship me. Satan kind of gives up on his previous temptations, when he just kind of throws it down. He realizes that Jesus isn't taking the bait like Israel did, and so he just says point blank, hey, listen, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you this. But Jesus says in verse 10, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy Quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Jesus says, I'm not going to fall into this temptation, devil. I'm not going to fall into the same temptation that the Israelites fell into. Remember, they worship the golden calf. Jesus says, I'm not going to fall into that. But he also says something else that's significant. He says, the cross is going to be worth it. This is the will of God for me. It's a path of suffering. It's a path of humiliation. But it is a path that I'm going to choose because I love God and I love people. God so loved the world that he sent his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the moment where Jesus chooses the cross. This is a big moment. Jesus chooses the cross. He chooses to die for me and for you so that we might have salvation and relationship with God the Father. Matthew shows that this is Jesus' final temptation the most difficult one. And as soon as the devil realized that he was getting, not really getting anywhere, Jesus tells him to leave, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only should you serve, he leaves. In verse 11, and this is significant. Because what we've learned so far is that living in the will of God is worth the temporary suffering because God is trustworthy. What happens in verse 11? It says, then the devil left him, and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus' needs did not go unmet. The angels ministered to him. We don't know what they did. Maybe they brought him food. The devil tempted him with food. Jesus didn't take the bait. God takes care of him. The devil tempts him to show himself as the Messiah in the temple. He doesn't have to. The angels came and ministered to him. He's the Messiah. God takes care of his Messiah. And finally, the angels strengthened Jesus for his journey to the cross. The pattern of temptation is doubt, unbelief, and rebellion. Doubt, did God really say this? Is this really what God is saying in his word? Can we, can we trust that what God is saying is true? Then we fall into unbelief. I, I don't believe that God has my best interest in heart. I don't believe that God is going to feed me like he says he is. I don't believe that God is going to take care of me like he says he would. I don't believe that God is going to fulfill my God-given desires. I I believe I need to take this into my own hands. I need to do something about this. I can't keep living in faith because God is not paying attention to me. That's when we step into sin. When we step into sin in the heart and the mind, we start committing acts of rebellion. We seek to satisfy God-given desires outside of God-given bounds. That's what Jesus resisted. Jesus resisted because he had complete, concrete trust in God as his father, that God would take care of him. And what happened? Verse 11, God takes care of Jesus. And one other verse to note, Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the final words that Jesus gave to his disciples as he is ascending into heaven. Remember, the devil offered Jesus a certain level of authority in the final temptation? Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God gave Jesus all authority because he fulfilled the will of God perfectly. Jesus didn't need to shortcut it. He didn't need to take it from the devil in that moment. He knew that God would bless him and give him all authority as the Messiah if he just stayed faithful to him. Imagine if the Israelites would have done that in the wilderness, if they would have obeyed God perfectly. But God knew they couldn't. That's why he sent his son. You and I also don't have the ability to obey God perfectly, but Jesus gives us the opportunity to experience life, to experience right relationship with God. So where do we go from here? There's a few principles that we can pull out of this text. The first one is that we know that God is going to use circumstances to test our faith in order to strengthen us in Him. If you are a believer, you can guarantee that God is going to bring circumstances and opportunities in your life where you need to step out in faith to strengthen your faith in God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For that very reason, God's going to give you opportunities to strengthen your faith. Don't view them as... Uh, moments where God is putting you into a temptation. That's not happening. Now, the devil may use it as an opportunity to tempt you, but God is using it to test your faith in him. Like Jesus, stand firm. Don't fall into unbelief. Believe what God says is true, and you will be able to resist temptation. Also, temptation is a reality. What this passage teaches is that all of us have failed temptation in one way or another. What we learn from this is that we are like Israel in the Old Testament. We've fallen into temptation. We've fallen into unbelief. We've committed acts of rebellion. Yet where we have failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus stands in the gap for us. He says, you can't live the perfect life, so I'm gonna do it for you. If you step out in faith in me and trust in me that I paid the penalty for your sins and believe that I died on the cross for you, you can have eternal life through Jesus. We can have that through Jesus. And we can fight temptation. We can fight doubt, fight unbelief, and fight rebellion. Place our faith in Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly. We look to him as a model and as a as somebody who who completely um, lived a sinless life. Also of note, Satan has been defeated. This is the first step in Satan's uh, complete defeat, where Jesus says no to temptation, not that Jesus wouldn't be tempted any further in his ministry, but this is the big one. Okay, Jesus basically puts his foot down and says, I am not going to fall for these tricks like Israel did. So he defeats Satan, and he finally defeated Satan and sin at the cross, and then in his death, burial, and resurrection, sin has been defeated. The only power that Satan has is through deception. He has no other power over you if you're a believer. He can't do anything to you except deceive you and to make you believe that God is not worthy to be loved, served, obeyed, and trusted. So the only thing that Satan can do is try to deceive you. So remember that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a way out of every single temptation, and that goes through Jesus Christ. Believing in God's goodness and his love for us. Also, Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation. Remember Hebrews 4, verses 15? Keep reading in verse 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the high priest being Jesus, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Also Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself, talking about Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we are tempted, we have a high priest who is our advocate. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives to ever make intercession for us. Jesus, if you are a believer, Jesus is interceding on your behalf to the Father. He's advocating for you. He's fighting for you. He's praying for you to have strength to endure temptation. Jesus is our advocate. He's our high priest. He lived the sinful, sinless life, and so he can be our advocate. He stands in the gap between us and the Lord, and he's making intercession for us. So when you're tempted, Cry out to the Lord. He's praying for you. He will give you grace. He will give you the faith that you need to endure temptation. Finally, I want to challenge you to experience the healing power of Christian community. I lightly touched on this when we're talking about scripture, but come be a part of our community. We gather on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings every single week. Come experience the healing power of Christian community. Because when we build each other up, we confess our sins to one another, we pray for one another, that builds your faith. It strengthens your faith. When there's somebody else going through the exact same things that you're going through, you don't live in isolation anymore. You're able to relate to others. You're able to go through the Christian life together. Christianity is a team sport. Let's play together. Let's pray with one another. Let's build each other up as is good for the body. I'm not going to have an invitation this morning, but I'd like everybody to just bow your head and close your eyes. This is this is a passage that is sometimes difficult to read and to teach and to hear because we so often we fall into temptation. And I'd like to take an opportunity, just um, as as an elder here at your church, I want to pray for you. Um, Some of you may be going through some battles in your life. Maybe you're going through a time of of severe testing where the Lord is taking you through uh, just a a phase in life that's really difficult. I wanna recognize that this morning. And I wanna recognize that maybe you're facing temptation. Maybe the devil is seeing this opportunity where the Lord is trying to strengthen your faith and yet every time you you try to do the right thing, you fall into temptation. You don't see it coming and you fall into acts of unbelief or, or rebellion. If you're going through a hard time right now every every head bowed every eye closed and you would just like some prayer will you just slip your hand up for me all right thank you thank you I see your hands brothers and sisters know that our our pastoral team here we love you um, we, we all go through situations where our our faith is is tried, and, and we all fall into temptation. Let, let us help you. Let us pray for you through that. I want to lift you all up this morning. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. God, how thankful we are that you did not fall into temptation, God. Lord, that you stood firm, God, that you did not repeat the mistakes of Israel, God, but that you lived a sinless life. And God, most of all, Lord, you chose to take the path of the cross, that you chose to die for us, an excruciating, painful death, that you decided not only to take on all the physical uh, suffering that that would entail, but also the spiritual suffering of having to carry every single sin of every single person in the entire world. And you took that on for the joy that was set before you, Lord, because you trusted that God is good, that he is a good father. Lord, I ask that the faith that you showed during this time of temptation is bestowed upon us as well. God, I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters who, who are honest enough to, to say, I keep falling into temptation. I'm having a really hard time. God is testing me, and yet I still, I still stumble. God, I pray Lord, that you would strengthen them right now. Strengthen all of us, Lord. We're all gonna face temptation. As soon as we leave this place, God, we're gonna face all kinds of temptation. Lord, I ask right now that you would strengthen us, strengthen our faith, Lord, may we not fall into doubt and unbelief and then into acts of rebellion, Father, but may we trust, Lord. May we trust that your will for us is good and that it's worth any type of temporary suffering that we may experience because you are trustworthy, God. Lord, help us to come together as a Christian community, as a body of believers, Lord. Strengthen us as a body, Father, that we may be able to resist the devil and that he will flee from us. Grow us in holiness, grow us in godliness. Lord, I also ask that you keep us healthy, Lord, Lord keep us safe, help us to continue to gather as a Christian community, Lord, during this time. And Lord, we love you. God, we're so thankful that you died on the cross for our sins. Thank you for saving us, Lord. I ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.